We're right at uh, 2 o'clock central here. Uh, time to get started. Welcome back to Calling Shots, Episode 5. I'm Seth Partnow of The Athletic and Stats Bomb, and please buy my book, uh, The Midrange Theory. Um, but I'm here today with uh, Caitlin Cooper, uh, uh, Indiana Pacers expert extraordinaire, uh, and uh, wanted to talk a lot, a lot about Indiana. Even though the Pacers don't get a lot of ink, they figure to in the Days leading up to the trade deadline, they're sort of one of the more interesting players in the league uh, in that area. So I couldn't think of anything, anyone better to talk about that with than Caitlin. So, uh, Caitlin, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and, and tell the people uh, uh, where they can find you? Hey, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper on Twitter. And then I write about two articles per week at Indy Cornrows, which is the SB Nation Indiana Pacers blog. And yeah, it's been a minute since I've talked to you in podcast form. I think I was on Nerder with you and Mo and Dave about around this time last year, close to. That, sound, that sounds about right. And we kept, we keep trying to get you to come back and you keep, uh, you keep deferring. Uh, and, and that's actually what I wanted to, 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 uh, chat with you about, because a lot of times we've wanted to get you on to, uh, help us break down like playoff games or stuff like that. And you've kind of demurred, uh, because your expertise is, uh, is so centered on, on the Pacers. So uh, first of all, kind of how did that come to be? And then we'll, we'll talk about kind of the pros and cons of being kind of single team focused. Right. So, I mean, basically just as a background, like I grew up here in Indiana and my dad was coaching basketball from around the time I was about 11 into my early twenties. So I was just always in gyms and then I was playing myself while I was in high school. So um, basketball is kind of the family business and just a huge part of my life. And when I got went to college, studied history, and when I was done with college, I was kind of drifting a little bit. My sister suggested to me, she was like, you know, you know, I think you should go back to basketball and what you loved and start trying to write. So I started writing. I sent some pieces over to Tom Lewis, who was our site manager at Indy Cornrows. And he was like, yeah, we'd love to have you write for us. And it's just kind of taken off from there as far as how I've started covering the Pacers. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a difficult process because the way that I want to write, I want to write very nitty gritty articles where you're noticing very small minutia. And in order to do that about other teams, I feel like I would need to be seeing like every minute of basketball that they played. And, and there were times last year that I did want to be able to come on and do some of the playoff games. But then as it was, the Pacers were like really trying to insert themselves into the conversation during the playoffs because they were firing another coach and uh, other changes were being made that kept diverting my attention. But I did have some other plans last June that never really came into <laughs> being able to go forward with them. Sure. So would you say that like from a, from a nitty gritty X's and O's standpoint, is that just sort of, uh, you mentioned it's like the family business. Is that sort of uh, something that, that you were interested in from an early age? Did you, you kind of sit with your dad as he was doing breakdowns or, or did, did that something that kind of came later that you, you kind of educated yourself on? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I joke around a lot that when I was uh, younger, I was kind of like Hayden Panettiere's character. Right. And remember the <laughs> I was always on the sidelines and probably thought I knew stuff that I knew nothing about at the time. But like my dad would have playbooks in the gym and they'd be laying there and I would always be flipping through them and trying to figure out on my own which plays they were running. I've also told this story before, but um, – it's kind of weird what dynamic Indiana has with the NBA in general. Like it's a basketball state, but it tends to lean towards college basketball and high school basketball. So in the area where I grew up, it was a football town first and foremost. But um, I didn't know anybody that watched the Pacers that was my age. Like I didn't know other NBA fans, but that's what my dad always watched. He wanted to watch the best players in the world and learn the game through that lens. So 
that's what we viewed. And he did pull a couple plays from, from NBA games. I, I vividly remember that he had one called Argentina, that the Argentinian national team and the Spurs ran for Monty Ginobili, other sets like that. So when I was watching him pull it, I started recognizing patterns that teams had probably when I was around in high school. And then obviously I had to know my own team's plays in order to be able to play. But um, just being able to write and learn from people like you and other smart people on the internet, um, I picked up the game somewhat that way too. And another funny aspect of it is, is uh, the Pacers making these coaching changes has actually, I think kind of grown my knowledge of the game a little bit because you kind of get to go into the next season with a bit of a roadmap. Like when they went from, Nate McMillan to Nate Bjorkren. Nate Bjorkren used so much of the Raptors' Nick Nurse system that I had a really good idea throughout that season of where he wanted to go and what plays they were going to run. And then you could cross-compare if teams got to the same counters and how the stuff fit on different players. And some of that's also applied to Rick Carlisle, where the Pacers run a lot of the same stuff that the Mavericks did last year. Of course, with some other tweaks based on what personnel they have, I would say more so than what Nate Bjorkren did. But... Um, it's helped me to recognize and see stuff that's going out on the court for sure. Let's let, let, right there. I want to, I want to ask a little bit more about that. Just we'll, we'll come back to kind of the, the background stuff a little bit, but I'm, I'm sort of curious about that because it seems like the, the sort of the roster and, and the talent base of the, of this Pacers team is about as far removed as you can get from what, what the Mavericks had, especially offensively. I mean, you went from, you know, basically the most, one of the two most ball-dominant players in the league in, in Luka Doncic to, you know, a very flat kind of talent base. I mean, or a flatter talent base, obviously. You know, you have your, you probably your your top stars. You would, I, I imagine you would say Sabonis as the, as the best player. But it's still a very different kind of group. Um what have been some things that you've noticed that are the same and what, what are some of the differences based on, on what they're, what they're trying to do based around that, those personnel combos. And of course the, the weirdness of, of uh, not even knowing who's available night to night in, in this, uh, this wackiest of seasons. Right. So, I mean, the Sabonis role was kind of strange in general. I remember I wrote a piece over the summer where, I had talked about some plays that I thought could maybe cross over and a lot of them did. I mean, just like basic, you know, you'll have Turner and Sabonis at the elbows and Iverson, somebody runs that off and then they set picks on both sides with a boomerang pass. The Mavericks have run that a lot between Luca and Brunson last year, of course, to get the ball back to Luca. You'll see the Pacers do that with Karras and Brogdon and Miles and Sabonis as well. Um, a lot, they run a lot of variations with Veer. And I think sometimes that overburdens Justin a little bit because he's kind of their only movement shooter they have on the roster. So in order to get some of those shifts in gravity and get people moving, he has to do a lot of that. But um, yeah, the thing with Luca is I think prior to that, I think most people would probably describe Rip Carlisle as somebody that kind of did a lot of team ball from the guard positions. So I think when you watch the Pacers, it's just it's just a more even distribution of who's getting to do a Spain pick and roll or, you know, who's 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 the back screener, who's leaking out and who's running it. Whereas last year it would pretty much only predominantly be Luca. Um, Sabonis early on had a lot of his elbow and post touches divested and he was kind of being used more as like the screener only a lot of times Karras wants to reject a lot of picks. So it was eliminating some of their opportunities on the roll. But here over the last month when they've had guys in and out of the lineup, a lot more has been, put around Sabonis not only as a fulcrum but also allowing him to do more on ball so his elbow touches have gone back up because he's he's getting the ball sometimes even as the inbounder not just off the rim 
and bringing it up and, and initially going into, you know, those quick handoffs off a push to the left side, but also even with some screens at the elbows where he's coming off more as a handler in certain situations. And they just kind of realized, hey, like, you know, we're better off if we're getting more rim frequency than we are as a team that ranks 29th in spot up efficiency and 26th or 27th in three point percentage in order to get better quality threes. So you'll see a lot more of the action going through him rather, whether as the role man or in the post, and he's getting so much extra attention because people have every reason to help off of those shooters. And because that's just how teams have been scheming for him that then you're getting a little bit better quality catch and shoot threes out of that. His numbers on passes out of the poster are back up to like 1.2 points per, per possession. So um, that's sure. about where it was last year. So, I mean, I think a lot of that got a lot of play in part because of me talking about why I thought his role was a little bit whack early on in the season, but they have adjusted. <laughs> they have adjusted sure. that over the last sure. like 15 or 20 games, I would say. So to, 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 if I can, like, from the Carlisle standpoint, it seems like this, it's more looking like the, the, the Luca teams were the aberration. And he's, he's, he's with this roster, he's getting back a little bit more into his comfort zone in terms of, of, of how he views offensive basketball. Is that, I mean, without, without having probably asked him that question, is that something that you would say fits the patterns of, of, of what they've done? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would ever use the word fully heliocentric with Sabonis. I mean, a lot more is getting funneled through him. But in terms of the guard play, like when they started the season, Malcolm's touches, time of possession, everything was very comparable to Luca last year. And that just seems like a very heavy load for him to carry. Um, yeah. Not only because of what his injury history is, but you can just see him kind of wear out as games go on. And, and I think also there was probably somewhat of Karis who – you know, he isn't a great off-ball shooter. His jump shot in general is iffy. And while he was dealing with the back issue, I think he wanted to be on ball more and having more freedom. So um, some of that distribution evened out a little bit. And then also just having some of these guys on uh, the 10-day deals and whether it's Kiefer Sykes now off the non-guaranteed and getting his contract guaranteed. Like, having these guys out of the G League, I think, did help them in certain respects because they're having to fight for positions in the NBA. And you could kind of see with regards to the team's energy that that has spread across. But also, like, you're not just going to be running tons of offense through Kiefer Sykes or just Lance Stevenson or, you know, just Dwayne Washington Jr. So um has been a little bit more egalitarian from the guard spots than what you would have seen over the first like 20 games when it was heavily Brogdon. Sure. And that like uh, I'm I'm somewhat familiar with Malcolm Brogdon and it does seem like um he's more of a sometimes suit kind of player. Like he like he does what he does very well, but you can you can't make a, you can't necessarily make a whole meal out of that. And and so making him like the the you know the the centerpiece of an offense in and of himself that does seem like just from a skill set standpoint, and I would almost say lack of counters, lack of counter moves. Um, it seems like you're you're you quickly reach a point of diminishing returns on just you know the the, the wear and tear and load aside, just from a, a skill set standpoint, that does seem like it's it's asking a bit much of him. Right, because he doesn't quite have the burst handle combo where you could see right. when they they went on like a three game losing streak between New York, Detroit, and Charlotte. And at the ends of those games, like New York was extending Alec Burke's full pressure against him. Detroit was trapping him, which he's seen a lot this season, more so than in the past, because again, teams have every reason to, because the Pacers don't have a lot of shooters. And he was struggling to pass out over the top out of some of those situations. So 
in a lot of respects, as I'm sure you would probably agree and know, like he is better suited being, you know, an off ball guard who can run offense, but not necessarily, you know, the top guy who needs to be running all of your offense all the time. So, um, and also just his point of attack defense is shaky as well, but yeah. I think I've described him as he's kind of a 1.75. Like he's 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 somewhere between a, a a a one and a two, but maybe a little closer to a two, just based on 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 skill set. Yeah. Um, so having like having I think just demonstrating the deep dives that that you go into on the Pacers, like what are some of the um, the things that you think it, it helps you being so familiar with one team, and and maybe what are some of the 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 drawbacks when you're maybe looking at, at opponents um, uh, that, that being so single team focused at like, um, you know, I think there's, there's, there's often the, the, the push and pull between knowing a little bit about a lot of things or knowing a lot about one thing. Um, and um, you, you are more towards the, 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 a lot about a single team than, than I would say most, but you know, are there specific things that you think that helps you with? And what are some of the, the things that, that you wish were maybe uh, a little easier. Um, right. Yeah. I think the, that there's, there, I think that there's definitely positives and negatives. Like the article that I released this morning, I was talking about different rotations that they've been making out of hedges and hard hedges. So like, for instance, they played the nets. If anybody watched that game and it was the first time that I remembered seeing them where, you know, if, if miles Turner is jumping out above the level, Sabonis would fully switch onto the roller as the release valve, and then Miles would just run to a random person on the perimeter, and the rest of the team would adjust. And they did that throughout most of the game, and then they they switched how they were doing that against Boston later on with how they were guarding the pop, where they were stunting over Dal Horford, which was kind of curious to me. But being able to see across multiple games, like, okay, this is how they've done this against, you know, Julius Randle versus Al Horford. This is how it's working if, if – Sabonis is up above the level versus Miles is up above the level. What are they giving up? Um, if you're just only dropping in for one out of every five or ten games, you may not know that they're adjusting that. Or, I've, I mean, I've even had people asking me from different teams, why are the Pacers hedging so much? And it's like, well, because they basically have no point of attack defenders and it also serves Sabonis better this season because he has been more agile and because he doesn't have the same rim protection skills as Miles Turner to be using that type of coverage. But if you're on the outside and, and like, obviously there's a lot of national reporters that know a ton about a different team. This isn't meant as a shot, but if you're just, you know, having to hover from above and, and dropping in every so often, you may not know all of that or know that Sabonis has actually made some improvements on that end of the floor over the course of the season. Now in the reverse of that, what you're saying is also true. Like, especially if the Pacers are going into a playoff series or, you know, if they are going to make a trade with another opponent, you want to be familiar with what players that they might be acquiring and some of those types of tendencies or how they would match up with other teams. So in my case, I'm typically watching the Pacer games more than once, but um, if something's out there, or I see that, you know, here's where they might land in the playoffs. I'll start trying to watch, you know, like before the bubble, as many Miami heat games as I can, even on nights, you know, okay, if the Pacers played at X time, I'm going to see when Miami's on the schedule and try to do that. But, um, there are drawbacks, especially because I have had some freelance opportunities. And then like when I wrote the piece about Eric Gordon and the Houston Rockets over the summer, I actually like used the tiny bit of vacation time I had in August to basically write that article and watch as much Rockets as I could 
which then wasn't really a vacation, but um, right. it did show that I could write about another team. Sure. Um, so I get asked this a lot. I, I've, I've instructed at, uh, at, at sports business classroom over the summer and online a couple different times. And I get asked a lot is like, Hey, how do I learn how to scout basketball? And so I think based on the, like the level of detail, you just mentioned you watch Pacers games multiple times. Um, for someone who's, who's just sort of trying to learn how to understand the game deeply at a nuanced level, uh, you know, are there any sort of, 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 of tips and tricks or advice that you'd give someone to kind of how to do that, how to improve at those skills? Like, obviously, I don't think anyone's going to start from zero and be able to break down a game at the level you can tomorrow. But how do they, what, what are some, some advice you might give to sort of move towards that and grow in that area? I think that my number one thing, and this is going to sound incredibly basic, but watch the, watch the full games. Um, I think that there's kind of a tendency that's grown where people, and, and it's great that NBA.com links clips of shots and you can learn a lot from that too. But I think there's a tendency for people, especially, you know, around the trade deadline of, you know, I, I'm going to watch every shot that Miles Turner took this year. Well, that's good in a regard to see, you know, does he step into his shot? Where do some of his shots come from? But it's not showing you what happens uh, if he can't get open or on opportunities where he didn't actually shoot or how teams are defending him when he isn't shooting. Like it's not giving you the full picture. So um, I would always say to watch the full game. And then while you're watching it, I mean, this is a tip that I've heard from, you know, your friend on nerd or Mo many times is to not watch the ball, watch what else is going out on the court, I think can get you um, to understand a little bit more holistically what's going out on the floor. And then also like something that I've watched a lot this year, and a lot of these hand signals go across multiple teams. Like everybody pretty much uses the same, you know, cross fist for, to signal Spain or stack. But the Pacers also have ones for, you know, horns twist and floppy and, and you know, a closed fist if they're going to be in zone or whether they're going to be in one three one zone. And when you start to see them do some of that before they get into the action, you know what's coming. And then, you know, you might be able to recognize different things that they look out of that depending upon what the coverage is. But also, some of it can be hard, too, because when you're watching it just on film, like just to give a specific example, and the Pacers were playing the Knicks a couple weeks ago, R.J. Barrett had like 30 against them. They ended up putting Torrey Craig in, and there was a pick and roll that was being run where he, where R.J. was on the right side of the floor. They pretty much exclusively jump out above the level with Sabonis. So Sabonis is positioned to do that at the same time as, as Torrey Craig defending the ball is facing the sideline like you would in an ice. But my guess is the instruction was because he was ripping them so much was we want to weak him and force him to his right. So what ends up happening is they give up a screen rejection because Sabonis is up at the top and Torrey's forcing him to the sideline and, and RJ just gets to the rim. So you don't fully know in those types of situations, you know, what was the instruction from the coaching staff? Is that because Sabonis didn't communicate at back line what the coverage was and Tori had just come in and was told, hey, start weakening him. Like certain stuff like that, it can be kind of hard to write about because you don't fully know what the team's intentions were. But if you watch what they're, what they're doing and where their positioning is in those situations, um, I think you can start to learn more. And just like I said, overall, I think it has been helpful that, that they've made these two coaching changes because you kind of have a roadmap for what the teams are going to do. No, no, stop me if I'm wrong, not the, but it does, but that's also, there's almost a link, possible language confusion there with, uh, 
player like Tory Craig changing teams, the new coach in. Um, it seems like, from my understanding, there's a little bit of a split in the NBA. You, you mentioned weaking. That's that's obviously on a on a ball screen forcing the the ball handler to his weaker hand. Now, right. some teams use that exclusively to say force him left. So, oh man, right. I'm guarding Gor- I'm I'm guarding Goran Dragic. So weak means force him left, even though he's left-handed. And some teams mean it to his weak hand. So even that could be a, a like a point of confusion there there as well, just because you know le- lefties screw everything up in the regular season because you you know you see one in ten guys as a lefty or even less than that in the NBA. And so uh, this is a uh, a theory that I've never been able to test is like lefties become less effective in the playoffs just because that like sneaky advantage of confusion when you see a guy like once every two months goes away. But that's neither here nor there. Um, would, uh, I mean, is that is that a possible thing that's going on there also? Right, because, I mean, it hasn't really happened outside of that game, which was interesting because, I mean, they were just letting RJ get to his strong left over and over again. Yeah. So my assumption is that they wanted to force him to his right because they don't ice a lot of side pick and rolls. Right. I mean, even if it's Miles Turner, they're usually either at the level or, I mean, even with Miles here lately over the last several games because of what their point of attack defense situation is. He's he's hard hedging or showing at the very least in a lot of situations as well. So there have been a couple other times. I mean, they got into a bit of an argument against the one blowout game where Jimmy and Bam didn't play against the Heat because a similar situation happened with Tyler Hero where they were using an automatic hedge no matter who the screener's defender was against Hero to get the ball out of his hands. And Karis LeVert gave up a screen rejection, was out of position, and then he and Sabonis kind of had a bit of an argument where you could see you know, Karis using talking hands, like, you got to talk. And Sabonis was like, you know, that's what coverage we've been using all night. You weren't even in position. And then it happened again, like, two plays later. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So, last sort of question on, on the, the how to do it. Um, how many things are you, you, you watching at once? Again, you mentioned you watched multiple times. Are you kind of, okay, this time through, I'm going to be looking at, at sets. This time through, I'm going to be looking at, at, coverages this time through i'm going to be watching this specific player or is that just a kind of a depending on what you're you're looking at i like again uh the, the kind of helping people direct their eyeline seems like the hardest part of of teaching scouting i've found and i like i'm i'm frankly pretty sub expert myself so this will help me as well in terms of of just you know how many things are you trying to pick up and how do you decide like what you're really focused on at any given time in, in your watchings. Right. So it's kind of a bit of a split focus because like as a writer, I have a lot of freedom in what I get to write about uh, at the various places that I write. So I'm not doing game recaps, which is a bit of a luxury where I'm not necessarily having to watch the whole game to be able to tell you exactly what happened. So if I have a topic that I want to write about, like I knew I wanted to write this piece about hedging, you know, I'm going to be focused mainly on the defensive possessions and then what's going on around those specific rotations. Just what is the low man doing on all those plays and, and how are they rotating out of it? So just from a writing perspective, that le- allows me to narrow my focus very heavily. But if I'm going to be doing like, you know, more quote unquote scouting, like, OK, I'm writing a bunch of coaching profiles and I need to learn something about the Dallas Mavericks, then, you know, it, it might be more from the perspective of, you know, sets and. And okay, well, if if they didn't get Tim Hardaway Jr. coming off of that pin down, what did they go to next? Um, That type of stuff. I know that probably sounds really general, but 
I myself didn't even always have a complete plan for this. I mean, I know on Christmas Day it was interesting because something that I've kind of been focused on and I would really like to know if Second Spectrum or somebody tracks this, but it seems like there's a general trend in the NBA across multiple teams. The Pacers do this a lot, but I've seen Phoenix do it. I've seen Boston do it. Um, I've seen the Lakers do it. That if teams are getting unfavorable mismatches out on the perimeter with a big, that they're actually blitzing isolations a lot more this year and then forcing the other guys to rotate out of them. So that's just kind of like no matter what games I'm watching, I've kind of been watching for that to see how teams can handle scrambling out of that. And maybe if that's something we see more in the playoffs for teams already looking ahead, like, hey, you know, because I saw Phoenix do it against the Warriors where, you know, if, if Aiton was out on a switch against Steph Curry, Jay Crowder would come over on a blitz and then Steph would have to relocate and whether Phoenix could get out and do that. So is that something that teams are already looking ahead out of? Like, you know, we don't want to – we want to be able to keep and protect our bigs as much as possible out on the court. And I know you hate the phrase, which I do too in certain circumstances. You know, Rudy Gobert getting played off the floor. Um, <laughs> but is that is there another way that they can do that without some of the mismatch hunting that goes on? Right, so right. that's just an example of something specifically that I will watch for in games sure. if it's something that I think is interesting. I'm I'm wondering, just hearing you describe that, I'm wondering how much, and this is something that is a, I think the Warriors face a lot because of how, especially late in games, um, how almost unwilling other players are to make a play with the ball, ball in their hands. So with all these, with all these kind of replacement players, all these, the hardship players in the game, it's just like, all right, make the G League guy beat us. I wonder how much of how much of how much of it is okay. They want to get this this mismatch, but they have two guys who were playing in Fort Wayne yesterday. So, like, let's put the ball in their hands and see see how that works instead of letting you know Chris Paul work against our big for <laughs> for ten seconds or something like that. I wonder I wonder how much of that is is playing into like uh, the, the strategy. I like overall. I think that that's the big question I have about a lot of sort of strategic wrinkles we're seeing this year is how much of it is a reaction to the sort of the uneven talent level that's on the floor on a night to night basis over the last six weeks or two months. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely a good point because when the Nets played the Lakers on Christmas, they obviously didn't have Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant and a slew of other people. And, you know, James Harden gets trapped a lot anyways, but if, if he got a switch against Melo, the Lakers were doing the same thing where they were blitzing the isolation. I mean, the Pacers down the stretch the other night, and they're depleted, as you say. I mean, Boston had most of their guys. Marcus Smart went out late, but they, they were blitzing isolations against Jalen and Jason every time. They blitzed isolations against DeMar DeRozan in Chicago. So, yeah, I mean, that could very well be a part of it, that, you know, these guys aren't used to playing with each other, and we're going to test out, you know, if some of these people that are on replacement contracts and may not even have, you know, great familiarity with their teammates can do something with the ball. Uh, last thing I'll ask before we start to get into to the, the Pacers more specifically is have you ever thought about doing just like a, an NBA, like a, a piece that's just like an NBA lexicon? Like, I think um, it, it's not as bad as football, but they, especially in the NBA, there is sort of a vocabulary of things that if they if the term was explained to people once they're like oh yeah I know what that is but it's just the the, the language of it is is sometimes you know uh, coach speak can be a, a you know a little bit of obfuscation when you don't want to answer the question you just you throw a bunch of jargon at someone's like oh yeah it sounds neat um, but whereas if you actually if if the uh, sort of the questioner knew what what the what the terms were out on their fingertips they might be able to. Uh, 
evaluate whether you're full of crap or not. But but have you ever but have you ever you know thought about uh, you know there's some very basic NBA concepts and like Mo Mo does this in his in his uh, Twitch stream and stuff like that. But even just basic things like you know low man and 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 things like that, which would I think really open up what's going on in 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 the game of basketball to the I don't want to say the average the like the casual fan, but the interested fan who doesn't know how to start getting into the real subtleties of of the X's and O's. Right. So people actually ask me that a lot. Like are will you write a definition piece about X and sometimes within my own writing I try to put like annotations or, you know, if there's a picture there I'll I'll try to, you know, draw it out and then have a label which, you know, might be more clear or less clear depending upon what your immersion level in basketball is. But, yeah, as you say, Mo makes those videos. Obviously, Dylan Murphy has the basketball dictionary that talks about, you know, pick-and-roll coverages and I think maybe some formations like horns and other stuff like that that I think is very helpful. And then here recently, just to give somebody a shout-out, I actually don't know what his full name is, but his handle on Twitter is Bowser to Bowser, and he's a high school coach. And he started up the basketball action dictionary on medium. So if you go there, um, he has explanations of off screens, uh, pick and roll coverages, um, various, you know, stuff like, you know, here's what chin is. Here's what zipper is. Here's what, you know, those types of definitions that I think would be very helpful for a lot of people. And and, um, it's very clear writing and he has pictures that are drawn out on uh fast model as well as video links to teams doing the actual stuff. So he's so good at that, that I don't think people probably need my rudimentary uh, drawing skills and, and video (laughs) adaptations, but I would definitely point people in that direction if they're trying to learn um, more about actual just jargon and terminology and how they can recognize more of that out on the court. That is a great shout, and I am not from not familiar, but I will uh, I will immediately follow that after this uh, after we get done here. So thank you for that. Um, let's let's change gears greatly. Um, I mentioned the tarp at the top that the you know with the with the trade deadline coming up, the Pacers are kind of almost more interesting uh, in the broader league context. And this is this is not meant to be disrespectful. It's just there's you know there's there's eight ten teams that think they have a a reasonable chance of making some noise in the playoffs, and it's fair to say the Pacers aren't one of them. So, but it's mo- they're more their impact on sort of the postseason is more where some of their players end up. So, first of all, I want to ask like what what's last couple of years, what's happened? Like this, you know, I don't think they have elite level talent, but I think they've you know underperformed a little bit their their talent level on paper the last couple of years, and and some of that is injuries, obviously, but sort of. What, what, what's been going on with, with the Pacers? What's not working? Right. I mean, I think it's weird for a writer like me to say, but I'm at the point with where the current moment is that some of it is just unquantifiable. There's just when you watch them, there's just a certain degree of a stale quality and a certain element of just certain moments that it ha- where it happens, where it seems like, you know, some guys want to be doing things that other guys should be doing. And then they're getting in each other's way. Like I have a clip um, from Twitter yesterday where I just captioned it as why. And you could see a moment when they played against the Phoenix suns where miles just inexplicably cuts from the left wing to the post when he's being defended by Aiton. at the same time as Kiefer Sykes has Devin Booker in space and is trying to drive to the basket and initiate their offense. So 
it's basically like he's just cutting off uh, Kiefer's driving lane while bringing Aiton as the rim protector to to the basket. Some of that's just Miles not fully. I don't know how to put this nicely. Like he doesn't really know how to find his own usage. Still, there's moments where he lands on it, and other times where he doesn't know how to move in relation to his teammates. If he's not an intricate part of the play, if he's playing outside of it. So I think some of it's that, but I also think some of it's just quite frankly, that he has been very vocal about wanting more shots and to prove that he's a two way player. And, and you can see that the Pacers have reacted to that to a certain extent over the last few games where, you know, they're calling opening plays for him and, it seems like he wants to strangely be posting up a lot, which I know that his efficiency numbers in the post aren't bad, but just as an example, like they played the mini series against Boston this week and Robert Williams was guarding Torrey Craig after a made basket. And Josh Richardson was checking miles Turner in the post, which I mean, he did make a play there, but he's not like drawing double teams. Like, you know, Sabonis is going to get swarmed by, you know, three people. Then that's opening up shots for everybody else. That was effectively Boston saying, you know, oh, well, we've made 18 threes tonight and threes greater than two. And we don't think you're going to make that many of those. So um, there's there's a certain amount of that dynamic. And like you said, I don't like to paint all of it this way, but I do kind of want to know how this would have shaked out if TJ Warren and Karis LeVert both would have been ready to go from the very beginning of the season. Instead, they drop like several very close games early on and it kind of seemed like their morale was somewhat affected. And then also um, if people weren't watching them very closely, they were, there was a lot of micromanaging and play calling going on through probably the first 15 or so games until they really relaxed that. And now they're playing random a lot, which I think is good, but that suits some players better than others for some of the reasons that I, you know, prior explained, but like just looking back over the last two years, like, you know, they transitioned from, you know, the bubble season where Victor misses most of it, he's injured. Then Sabonis misses the entire bubble because of plantar fasciitis. The Nate McMillan offense is looking very one and done and hitchy. So they make a change there and they go from Nate Bjorken and it seems like, you know, they addressed the wrong needs. Like from the minute he was hired, you know, what he needed to fix was the offense. And he did to a certain extent. He modernized their shot profile and it was a lot more, you know, rim first and foremost, but also threes and less mid-range. But the way he talked, it was, you know, I'm going to make the defense aggressive and disruptive and all this stuff. And they were already a top six defense. Like that was already a part of who they were. Like they didn't really need to remake the wheel in that regard. And now, you know, another coaching change happens and they needed to fix the defense and that still hasn't fully come into being. And the offense is still kind of middling. And it just feels like this is a group that's just run its course. Cause I know I've got asked, you know, we do a podcast where we ask questions and people send them in and, People are like, you know, how much of this is on coaching? And I think early on in the year, some of the ways they were trying to figure out what guys can do was the stuff I explained about Sabonis up at the top. I don't think was super helpful. And I think, you know, some of the pace control where you could literally hear them telling to hold the ball off of stops wasn't helpful. But at this point, I've seen the coaching staff make a lot of adjustments. I've seen them try lots of different things. And it just feels like, you know, there's some overlap and fit issues between Karras and Brogdon because, you know, both of them kind of need to have the ball, and a lot of guys just are not shooting the ball well for the Pacers this year. They only have a couple guys, and I don't totally measure spacing by three-point percentage, hence my piece over the summer at 538. But um, you also, it, if, if your best player is getting swarmed, you need to be able to hit a shot out of that, and they just don't have a lot of guys who are 
um, been making shots for whatever reason. So um, I just think that they've reached a point where it's just time to make changes to put it simply. So, all right, let's, let's, so let's, let's talk about some of the players. I mean, you let's, I I guess we'll, we'll leave Turner for Turner and Sabonis for last because those seem like the two, the two sort of biggest, uh, biggest pieces that could move this year. Um, I would throw Brogdon in there, but he's not trade eligible because he signed the contract extension, which um, is its own, it's its own other thing. I think, I think Brogdon would be a very interesting uh, acquisition for kind of any contention level team, just because his he he's he's about as plug a play a player as there is in the league. I think just in terms of his he can he can play off ball, he can play on ball, he can maybe he's not the best defender, but certainly offensively he can fit most teams that are trying to do something. But it doesn't matter because he's not eligible to be traded. So uh, let's 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 start with Karis Karis Levert. Um, it's a player who I've been. Um, very optimistic about in the past and trying to trying to envision sort of what I thought he could be is maybe not quite at this level, but a little bit of what like Shea Gilgis Alexander is doing, you know, in relative anonymity in Oklahoma city, but just kind of the ability to sort of um, length and pace his way into a lot of, of penetration and, and just be a very difficult cover. I think uh, we saw this a little bit a couple of years ago in the playoffs against uh, Brooklyn, or when he was with Brooklyn, excuse me, and I forget who they were playing. I think it was the Sixers, where he was just basically in the lane the whole time with the ball. He just was getting by guys, and that seemed like a very interesting player, but that hasn't really happened. Um, where Where do you see him now? What kind of team do you see him fitting in with, or... Is he just someone who still has to prove that they can be uh, like a high level contributor on a, on a contention level team? Right. So, I mean, just a, like a shot profile standpoint, it's, it's not always super helpful for him that he likes to stop and take those non restricted area twos. Cause on nights when those shots aren't falling, as we know, like he has some games where he's gotten to the line a little bit better here of late, but He's a high usage player. He's a guy who needs like the ball in his hands to the degree of a star, but he's not going to produce like a star every game. He's going to have games where he's going to be like five of 19 from the field. And then he's not going to seem overly useful because defensively um, he can do some undisciplined things. He's he's okay moving, you know, laterally and trying to, you know, shoot passing lanes and, and use his length in that way. And there's times when he can be okay on ball, but then other times, you know, with what rotations he's making, he, he makes mistakes. But I also think somewhat of his herky-jerky game is both the best and worst thing about him in some respects because he is so disorienting because the way that he manipulates the pick-and-roll I think just has to be very hard for defenders to know exactly what he's doing. But I think it's also kind of hard for his teammates to always know sure. exactly what he's doing. And then there's the piece of it where like the number one thing that he wants to do if he's getting a screen on the right side, as he wants, to, he's going to hold it and jab stuff. And his number one option is going to be to reject that, which you know is good in a lot of ways because I think most teams want players to use screens because then you're going to go into the help coverage. But in his case, like you want to do that quickly when when the screener's approaching, so that you're actually not just driving into a crowd when you get there. And sometimes he'll do that, and then he'll lose the ball, or you know he doesn't quite have like the lefty one-handed hook pass so when he he wants to move to his left but then to get out of that 
if defenders converge on him, he doesn't always have a great escape or a counter. And then just it's also eliminating somewhat of what he can do with the role man when he does so much of that, unless he can really manipulate the passing window once he gets out. So, like, I know there was rumors last year about, you know, I think it was around the trade deadline when people are like, oh, the Pacers might listen to offers on Brogdon and Sabonis because they see Karis LeVert as the point guard of the future. And, like, I do think he's going to be better for a team with the ball in his hands as much as he can. But to think that he could do all that playmaking without those two out there, um, he's had some games with some better assists, but there's times where he makes a play, but it is not the right play. So um, just to sure. give an example, like he's in Milwaukee and Sabonis is setting a corner pin in for Miles. Miles is wide open and Sabonis motions to him like seven times behind him, like give him the ball, give him the ball. And, and Karras goes to the opposite side and shoots a little pull up baseline too. So those are moments that the team's going to have to stomach and take <laughs> with him for the other good things that he can do for you, which I mean, he can get downhill with ease. He's very good at getting his defender on his back and decelerating. He has a good last step, like you said, where he can kind of, you know, lope his way one last step to get to the basket. But um, there is a big part of me that wonders if like his best role, especially on a good team is, is a six-man score-first guy who can come in and, and affect teams that way. I mean, that's uh, the the profile you're talking about is is someone whose whose best role is like an innings eater on a on a on kind of a mediocre team, really, and maybe maybe a more traditionally balanced from a from a skill set standpoint than than the Pacers are. I mean, the Pacers are you know, but the given given the centrality of, of Sabonis' offensive role, that is a little bit weirder. So if he was almost like, uh, you know, the the best version of, of like, D'Angelo Russell, who's not a player I'm particularly fond of, it's, it seems like you're describing him in an almost different skill set, but kind of similar level of player, it seems like, which is not a... Not an awesome acquisition target for a, a contender, I would, I would, I would surmise. Yeah, I mean the weird thing is, is that towards the back end of the Bjorkren tenure, Brogdon was out, I think, with a hip strain of some sort or a hamstring issue, and Karras really got to handle and be primary toward the back end of that. The Pacers were playing at a very high pace, like the second highest pace in the league, to try to outrun some of their defensive issues, which were then, you know negative feedback loop causing more defensive issues, but um, they were putting, they were putting up video game numbers and their chemistry and two man game was a lot better than what um, has been the case this year, where it kind of feels like, again, it's like this unquantifiable thing where it seemed like, you know, Karras has been a little bit more focused in certain games of, you know, getting his own shots than um, satisfying and making the right plays for the rest of the team. So let's let's move let's, let's talk about Justin Holiday a little bit because he's he's sort of a obviously a not a, more of an off ball like a, sort of a three and D um, archetype player. Um, first of all, I mean he's he's kind of at this point. I think that the three and D archetype is is almost uh, there's the there's the two guards and then there's the wings, and he seems much more um, of of the two guard type in terms of not someone who's necessarily you can throw out there against kind of the big wing creators that uh, that deeper deep like deep teams that make deep runs in the playoffs tend to have. So, uh, a would you agree with that? B what kind of what kind of role do you, you you think he could find on a on a you know a second round plus playoff team? Right. So I mean, his he's had to to wear so many different hats for the Pacers since they signed him in the first place because. 
when Nate McMillan was still here, he was coming off the bench and effectively playing the four. And what you're saying is very true. Like if, if he's having to guard up a position, um, you could see the effect as the season wore on, on, on some of his shooting, but also just, he doesn't have the heft to kind of handle some of those types of guys, even, you know, even just putting him on, like, you know, this is an extreme example, but if he has to guard a Paul George, I don't necessarily think that's a thing that you want, let alone like, you know, Giannis type archetype. Um, then last year, because of what Malcolm Brogdon's point of attack issues are, a lot of times he would be guarding, you know, point guards so that Malcolm Brogdon could shift over and guard wings. And I think by this season, he's probably lost a little bit of a step in those types of situations where defensively, it doesn't seem that he's playing quite to his same level. But when they're hedging in these lately, especially in the Sabonis only minutes, They've been effective with Torrey Craig and Justin out there with Sabonis because of the two of them are very good. Um, Justin has really good hip flexibility, being able to come over and recognize the timing when you have to be able to to tag and get back out to shooters. So that's a benefit of his. There's been games this year where, you know, he's taking a lot of threes because of what I said earlier. They just, other than Chris Duarte, who they don't use to come off of screens very often, I think in part, because he's not, he can get knocked off his route. He still needs to get stronger in certain situations. But, you know, a lot of that is falling on Justin Holiday. And I think between that and needing to start so many games, which ideally, you know, what you're saying, if he's on that type of a team, he's not going to be starting. I think that that's impacted his three-point percentage to an extent. But just his off-ball movement has been good this year. There's things that he does when, you know, just a simple 45 cut when maybe Miles Turner's popping so that that guy can't stun over and help. He's very intuitive and, and, and knows how to move so that he can, you know, remove taggers or help defenders, even if it isn't going to lead to shots for him. So um, I can see him being a guy off the bench that could help. And, and hopefully if his role was reduced to an extent where he's not having to do all of the running, um, he's still adding value to you in those very subtle ways that you're probably not going to readily see if you just, you know, look at what his three-point percentage has been this year. Sure. If if he was a guy who's getting a diet of, you know, mostly open shots, whether it's the kind of spot ups or, you know, off of off of some movement, um, would would you say he's this, this is a leading question because this is sort of my opinion that he's a good but not great shooter. Yeah, like you're getting you're, you're not getting you're not getting like Joe Harris or, or, or Duncan Robinson. Right. You're getting you're getting a, a, a credible um, spacer rather than a than a. Uh, the way it was all the way it's uh, you know, someone I used to work for described it is the difference between someone's a threat versus someone's a weapon, and he's more of a threat that has to be guarded than a weapon that you have to sort of game plan for. Exactly, because like just to give a a pass pacer example and ignoring the other end of the floor, if you're just making a choice between Doug McDermott and Justin, and all things are equal, you would choose Doug McDermott, um, not only because of. of Doug has a very good way about him about being deceptive and setting up his man. That's a little bit ahead. I think of what Justin is, especially with what his chemistry was with Sabonis a year ago, but also because like, just as an example, if, if, if they're setting a ball screen and Sabonis then sets a pin down and Justin's going to fly off of that, two defenders aren't often going to go to Justin that therefore opening Sabonis up for like a pin down pass. And that was Doug McDermott you would see two defenders go there like a meeting of three off of a stagger where you're also getting, you know, the passers defender coming in meeting Doug McDermott. 
that's not going to happen as often with Justin. And also, like, he's a little bit shaky when he needs to put the ball on the floor. He's done that a little bit more this year, somewhat out of necessity, but not to the extent of, you know, Doug McDermott moving from the left corner to his right and being able to leverage that and stay on track and put the ball on the court and finish on it with, you know, a reach-out right-hand layup. That's not something you're necessarily going to get from Justin. But, yeah, I would say he's a good shooter. There's some nights, like the other night against Phoenix, where he made, like, six or seven threes, and and you can see him moving and, and reacting and lifting from the corner. He's good at that, about manufacturing angles. But um, the defense does not respond to him in the same way that I, I saw the past two seasons when Doug McDermott was in the same role. Sure. It's uh, and everyone looks great when the shots goes in, go in, of course, but it's, but I think that's a really important point that I think you've hit on and something I've talked about a lot that, that it, what matters much more than the actual percentage, the actual percentage matters because it, it plays into this. If a guy's no matter how, like how threatening a guy is, if he's shooting 31% from three, he's not going to get the same reaction, but it's much more, like how the defense responds to him on every play, because what a guy's going to take like eight threes per a hundred possessions. So that's 92 other <laughs> 92 other possessions where how the defense is reacting to him is more important than it, whether he shoots 36 or 38%. So I, so just that, I think that's, that's, that is a, a very meaningful difference you're talking about in terms of, of if the defense is, is like, Oh crap! It's Doug McDermott. He's going to be open versus eh, Justin Holiday. We need to guard that pin down better. But you know, whatever. Um, I that, that's a, that's that's a pretty big difference in like the players' effectiveness. Right. I mean, I think that this even showed up. Like, I know we'll talk about this player later, but like Miles Turner, for example. Like when the Pacers were playing the Warriors, Draymond Green was defending Miles, and they were you know running horns twists where Miles sets a screen first, Sabonis follows it with a screen. And then Miles would literally come off an exit screen in the corner. Draymond Green would not follow him through that exit screen. But um, just another player that's being mentioned in trades. Like I've I've watched games for Charlotte where PJ Washington does basically the same thing, and and people will follow PJ Washington. I've seen you know DeAndre Ayton take steps outside of the paint, being like, oh, my guy is going out through that screen, and and now me as the tagger, I'm getting out of the way um, when he's at small ball five. So. I think that that's something important. Like neither of those were going to be shots for either of those two players, but it's opening up the pick and roll for the other two to be able to get to the rim. This is uh, I for, for for those who follow me, you know that I am a Im- immensely pro PJ Washington. So that's uh, it's good to hear that uh, that that he's caught your eye as someone who does have that that little bit of gravity. Oh, uh, let's quickly. Uh, Tory Craig is he? And I know he had some some moments for for Phoenix last year. Um, he strikes me as just he's he's kind of a he he's sort of a, a a body you can throw in and maybe a credible shooter, but mostly just you know the playoffs have have increasingly become the province of kind of the the, the physically stout six six to six eight guy. Uh, you can never really have enough of them, um, but he's he's just kind of that guy without anything necessarily like standout qualities. Yeah, I don't think that that's completely inaccurate. I mean even when you saw him playing for Phoenix in that series, like it was kind of funny since he had played for Milwaukee. It was like, anytime he shot the ball, the Bucks are like, ah, oh, yeah, we're not worried about that. Um, I think that that shows up when, when you watch him play for the Pacers too. But I think um, his, his role has been very inconsistent. That's kind of been a hallmark. Like the Pacers don't have a regular rotation. So I wonder sometimes if that frustrates certain players like O'Shea Brissett wasn't playing at the beginning of the season, despite the fact that he had kind of, 
surge and looked like he could at least be a rotation player. And then all of a sudden O'Shea was playing and Torrey wasn't playing and how they've, you know, kind of rifled between Jeremy Lamb and Keelan Martin and Lance Stevenson and, you know, whoever else that position's going to be. But in Torrey's case, um, here lately, I think, I think he had mentioned that he had talked with Rick Carlisle about how to find some of his shots. And so when they were up in the first game of the mini series against Boston, um, I forget how many points he scored, but he had the same amount of shots as Sabonis because uh, Boston was setting multiple switching and then swarming Sabonis in the post. And Torrey was just really um, doing a good job. I'm sure from his past history of having done the same thing around Jokic and Denver of just making cuts and, and, and good reads in those situations. And in that particular game, actually hitting shots out of that. Um, do I think he's going to consistently hit threes? No. Um, he's probably one of their better options. And quite frankly, like their only option to throw out against uh, elite wing scores. That's been a problem for the Pacers for a while. But I think that some of that can even be somewhat inconsistent. Like, I think he can do it in spurts. And sometimes it seems like his engagement kind of can wane in certain games. I think that was a problem a bit for the Bucks and why they decided, you know, I think why Mike Budenholzer was kind of playing Thanasis over him before they ended up moving on from Torrey Craig last year. But um, I think over the last two two weeks, he's been very good for the Pacers. Um if a team felt like they just kind of needed a utility guy that they might be able to throw out there in a playoff situation, if they don't have a lot of defenders, I think it would have to be in a very spot role because of what some of his offensive limitations are. But um, I don't think it was a bad sign that the Pacers made. And in theory, right. if you still had TJ Warren, I think you'd be pretty happy with it. Right. It's, uh, it sounds like it sounds like someone the, that that could be useful. I don't know in Utah, for example, where just a complete. You know, he's lack of he's, wing defenders. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like, like he's because he's he's bigger than Royce O'Neal. So that that who who I think gets overmatched against, you know, the, those 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 top wings that we've been talking about. Um, let's I mean, we could talk about the TJs, but they're both injured. I think that that either of them would be would be interesting if we had a sense that they would be able to be on the floor. But I just don't think we know enough about that to really I, I, I think that especially in this season with the sort of the uh the as inconsistent as available has been availability has been overall my guess is teams are going to be reticent to acquire injured guys uh unless it's like specifically for like a long-term reason and i don't really think either of those players are long-term plays for for a, a team it's fair to say um, so, I mean, unless, unless you disagree, but I like, they are, both are interesting players who I think could have roles on playoff teams if healthy, but they're not. So who cares? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, <laughs> I, I, I'm still very confused about what the current TJ Warren situation actually is. I mean, he's obviously entering a contract year as well. So I don't know yeah. uh, how teams might feel about that. So, yeah. yeah. So let's 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 talk about the uh, the the only the only national point uh, talking point about the Pacers for the last how long has it been? Um, can they make the no uh, Sabonis <laughs> and 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 Turner? Like it does. I mean, it, it it one of them has to get at least one of them has to get moved at the deadline this year, right? This is this seems like you talk about a team that's run its course. I mean, that's that's been the thing for five years now. Um, and, and so, yeah, which, first of all, which of those would you be looking at it from the outside contract agnostic, just in terms of who's going, who is a more winning player in a playoff situation and why between Sabonis and, and Miles Turner? I mean, <laughs> this is going to sound like a major cop out, 
No. Um, but I think it would depend upon it, it would depend upon the, the playoff matchup to a certain extent. Um, Miles has done a little bit better against switches this year, but I mean the last like month of his play is extremely perplexing to me about exactly what's going on. I don't know. I mean, obviously people know he had the cryptic tweets this week and he kind of tried to explain some of that out and talked about his camp, which kind of seemed like probably not a great thing anytime a player starts talking about their camp. But um, anyways, like it just doesn't seem like he knows where to be asserting himself. So if you look at some of the other teams that have been mentioned in conjunction with him and knowing what was reported by Jared Weiss about the at the athletic with actual quotes from Miles Turner about, you know, I'm just a glorified role player here. He clearly wants to be doing more than what he's getting to do. And the only way that's going to happen if Sabonis isn't playing for the Pacers. So if you look at the Knicks, you look at the the Timberwolves, you look at the Lakers, um, most of the teams, even the Mavericks, like he's going to be playing next to another big in all of those situations. Who's most likely going to be commanding more touches and more screens than he is. So um, that's a part of it. But I think, in some respects, I don't know that he always realizes it, but it's it's helpful to him that he does play with Sabonis because he is getting, you know, he's being defended at the four. So, you know, he, he will be able to go out there against Josh Richardson and be able to turn and shoot over the top. If he's not playing with another center, he's going to be getting defended by the five. And then it becomes the situation of he gets referred to as a stretch big a lot and he was shooting the ball really well to start the season and, there were times where he would see closeouts and he had developed like a one dribble escape three. But I think like about 31% of his shots have been contested. And I know that that data is somewhat can be iffy. And, and some of it too is that he drove closeouts, but you can watch in a lot of games where teams are taking extra steps off of him. Even if he's in the, the pick and pop, they're not going to prioritize him. So I don't know how much of it's actually stretching the defense. And then like, if you look back at the series they played against the heat, if you're a team and you're looking to acquire miles Turner, and you're going to be up against an opponent in the playoffs that switches and then crowds the paint. Um, I don't think he's going to provide you with a lot of roll gravity, and I would feel pretty iffy about his playmaking in the short roll and four-on-three situations. And just his ability to play random, which I think is becoming a lot more important to the NBA, where teams are going away from set plays because they know that they're scouting and they're going to be predictable. Um, So I I don't know that I would feel really good about that with him, but certainly his defense is – is very reliable for the most part, though I do think it's taken a step back from last year, and especially over the last month. The numbers with him on the floor defensively have been bad, both when he's on the floor with Sabonis and when he's just out there by himself. They're giving up like 117, 118 points per 100, in part because I just don't think he seemed completely engaged. And who knows what, you know, it was reported this morning that he's dealing with a foot injury, so who knows how long that's been going on. But um, there are some question marks there. Like, you know, I know that the Warriors have been, kind of mentioned in conjunction with both of them well, by, by me mostly uh right <laughs> yeah and and you've just you, you've just like like your 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 concerns about turner have just poured like a uh super bowl coach winning bucket of cold water on like like my enthusiasm for the like especially when you start you talk about his uh, like inability to play random it's like well that's the warriors um, like, like, right. sh- show me mid-career James Wiseman and what problems he might have is, is almost what you're, is almost right. Like what you're I mean, describing and that's, there. that's the thing, because if you ask me what's the best thing about Sabonis, I would say his ability to make reads. And if you ask me what's Turner's biggest weakness, I would say it's his ability to make reads. So, um, in the Warriors case, like you, you don't just have to be, you know, 
aware of the ball. You always have to be aware of Steph as well. Like you have to be reading off of both of those things. So with Sabonis, he would augment their strengths, right? Because he can do stuff in split cut situations. If Steph's getting blitzed and Sabonis is then on the short roll, like that's going to be the most space Sabonis has seen in an offense. Like he's not surrounded by the shooters that he would be surrounded with. And Golden State, if you want somebody that can be able to score, if they do switch it, you know, he's going to be able to punish that very heavily. And if they do bring an extra defender, still be able to pass out of it. You're not going to be getting that type of stuff off of Miles, but maybe you want Miles because he addresses some of their weaknesses. But then at the same time, you know, if Golden State's going to be closing with Draymond at the five, I'm not exactly sure what you would be doing with Miles at that point. And obviously he has some... I mean, it would seem by his cryptic tweet that he would like to be playing at the end of games and in fourth quarters and that he would like to be more heavily involved. I do question if he went to a market, you know, like in New York, like a Golden State, like the Lakers, where the very good things that he already does well were getting more attention, if some of that other stuff would matter to him as much. Like, you know, there'd be more eyes on, you know, how good he is in recovery situations and what his rim protection is and if more people were talking about it. Um, maybe right. some of his qualms with some of the other things aren't as much of a sticking point. So if like it, I, playing at the end of June, uh, if that would uh, eliminate some of the like some of the, the, the ardor behind playing at the end of games. Yeah, exactly. For, for a guy who hasn't enjoyed a ton of team success, at least recently in his career, you do like, that's an unknown. And it's, it's easy to talk yourself into certainly, but then like, like you know, some guys would like to prove themselves in that area, and that's it's hard to know from the outside. Um, defensive question about Turner. Um, one of the the reasons that that I that I've been intrigued by him and the Warriors is there uh, basically like it, the, someone who can solve this sort of the DeAndre Ayton, Anthony Davis, Nikola, like the fact that uh, outside of of of, of Kevon Looney, they don't have anybody who can. And even he gets overwhelmed. I mean, we saw in the first Suns game this year that he got he got pretty much abused by 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 Aiton, and that's a and looking forward to playoff matchups. That's a that's a potential glaring weakness for the Warriors. How much does Turner address that sort of um, the the more dominant offensive centers that you you might run into? That it's not necessarily a problem, you know, every night in the regular season. But you hit the wrong playoff matchup, and all of a sudden it's a big deal if you don't have anything to counter that. Does how well does he address that need? And we'll use that to sort of um, does Sabonis address that kind of need also, or at, at all himself? So, yeah, I guess that's for for both of those guys in terms of that specific defensive matchup niche. How do you how would you see either of them? Right. So just to give a specific example. I think there's a reason why Joel Embiid said, like, with all due respect, I've been dominating that matchup since I came into the league with regards to Miles. Um, and it's not even so much that Joel Embiid racks up a ton of points as it is. There's been numerous cases where the Pacers have played the Sixers and Miles gets in foul trouble within the first five minutes and then just struggles with that for the entire rest of the game. Um, clear back when Dan Burke was still the defensive coordinator, they actually had to go to fronting in some of those games with Miles because it had become... Joel's best friend, Dan Burke. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, Because it had become somewhat of a problem. I think that Miles has gotten a little bit better in some of those situations, and it might just be that, you know, 
not a lot of people can guard Joel Embiid, to be quite frank, but um, they played the Suns the other night. Aiton, I think, was close to 20 and 10 at halftime, and that wasn't all miles, but um, he's gotten a little bit better at handling physicality. If you go back and watch the game they played, um, I think it was the one in Denver when they played Jokic. Like, Jokic ended up cooking him in the fourth quarter, but he was putting up resistance. Like, he was making it very hard for Jokic to do it, so... I think that there has been some progress, but I like if you ask me what are the best things about Miles Turner on defense, his ability to defend his own matchup probably wouldn't be in the top five. Like that wouldn't be the number one, you know, things that I would be looking at. And that's large bucket of water number two on my <laughs> Turner to the face to the to the Warriors idea. So now Sabonis is obviously he's he's stronger. He's one of the, I think he's one of the strongest players in the NBA, like from a physical standpoint. Um, does that allow him to hold up better in those matchups or does his, you know, relative lack of, of length, um, does that just sort of shift the problem to, uh, to a a different sort of problem, but still problematic in those, those kind of matchups? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the holdup because he was putting up and, and being physical with Aiton last night, but Aiton was doing his work early and then going to his hook shot over his left shoulder and, and Sabonis really, you know, if, if there's anything you could give him, it would be the gift of longer arms. Like, um, both. I mean, he would have been, been a top five pick if he'd had, if he'd had, yeah. if he'd had like positional length. Exactly. Because, you know, even when he is in the post, like if he's defended by a Rudy Gobert, whether it's on the Lithuanian national team or for the Pacers, you know, that length really bothers him. He has to do so much with his footwork and, and just his overall headiness as a player to be able to, you know, find creases in the defense. But um, in the past, there were times where they would occasionally cross match some of those types of matchups, especially during the Nate McMillan era where they would put Sabonis on Embiid at times because he could be a little bit more physical. And then they might let, you know, Miles guard Ben Simmons or somebody else in space because he would be a little bit more mobile. Now, I think if you look at some of the stuff that Sabonis is doing this year, I think he maybe have taken a little bit of a step back in his ability to defend the post and has gotten better in the reverse, ironically, at being more agile and being able to defend out away from the basket where it seems like it's suiting him a lot better to either be playing at the level or above the level. And then, you know, kind of more the Jokic, Carl Anthony Towns current model up in Minnesota, where if they had, you know, if you were a team where you had, you know, Jaden McDaniels and Vanderbilt and these other, you know, lengthy, twitchy guys who could be doing more background rotations, that that would be like the ideal space for Sabonis to be slotted into, or if that's what the Pacers think that they're going to continue doing and want to be able to find more players like that. So not to, not, again, not to put, put you on the spot, but it does seem like if you were, like, again, the, I'm thinking of like, contending teams that clearly need something and i think it's like for as good as the warriors have been that's that's sort of them it sounds like from everything you're describing that you would you would say that that uh, sabonis would just be a better a better option to plug in there than than turner is that am i yeah i mean am i off in that or sorry go ahead no i mean just it like just to put all cards on the table. If it was just a question of, you know, which of these two players do you think is better? I think Sabonis is the better player. Um, I think his lack of rim protection could be a problem in certain defensive matchups. And I can't guarantee even for the Pacers that, you know, that that would be a thing that would work or that you wouldn't end up, you know, making another change later. But I think that there's so much value that he adds that, you know, maybe if people aren't regularly watching him in terms of, you know, 
not just his playmaking, but his screening and, and his overall knowledge of where he needs to be and move, even if he isn't involved in the action and little subtle things that he needs to do that are very Warriors, warrior system based that um, I think he would be very easy to fit there if that's something. Plus, I mean, he would benefit from having Draymond out there. You'd have this other, you know, very intelligent defensive player to cover up for some of the stuff that uh, you're just going to naturally give up with Sabonis um, defensively. Sure. But almost the almost the platinum version of David Lee is yeah. down down to being left-handed. Even um, how is has he how has he progressed as a shooter? Is does, is he someone who? Uh, w- would you feel confident at all if if he was uh, moved to a team where? You know, he doesn't have to be, or he just isn't as much of the offensive fulcrum. Could he be a semi-reliable spacer, or is that just going to be, is that just an impediment where he has maybe elbow range, but not really reliable out to the wings? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because if you just look at this system, or this season segmented, um, it was not optimizing Sabonis at all in the early going and in preseason when they were kind of trying to make he and Miles more interchangeable and letting Miles do, you know, a little bit of the DHO stuff, which isn't necessarily his strength with Sabonis in in the corner. Um, Teams aren't really going to defend him out there. I mean, I guess if you're in ball side corner, sometimes they will, but if he's in the weak side corner, um, you can see this late in the overtime game that they played against the Lakers where LeBron was guarding Sabonis. So the Pacers weren't really engaging that matchup because they didn't want LeBron to switch out and Mello was guarding um, miles so they were using miles at the screener Sabonis is in the corner and then lebron's just coming all the way off and like stripping miles at the rim so if you look at how teams defend him i don't think that they believe in his three-point shot um or just his shooting in general i've never been super concerned with that because i think that there's enough other ways that he reshapes the defense or against different types of coverage just if a team isn't a deep drop that he's so good as a DHO operator and knowing how to do some of that stuff that if you had shooters, they could still shoot into that space. Um, but there are, it's, it's strange because there's games where his shoot, his shot looks incredibly fluid and smooth. Like the very first game of the season, he made four or five threes against the Hornets, um, even made one out of a jab step and it was a very smooth looking release. And then there'll be other games where it, it doesn't, it's not as consistent. It doesn't look the same every time where I know that the coaching staff has worked on it. I know that he's worked on it in several summers, but um, the percentage hasn't quite got there, but I've never been somebody that thinks that that's going to hold him up. Certainly it would make him a more complete player if he could step out and hit those shots. But I also don't think that defenses are really going to care whether he's hitting them or not. I think that they're mostly going to still sag off. Sure. Um, let's uh, just uh, not to put you in the, the prognostication game, but, uh, this is a podcast, so what would we be doing if if we weren't asking for takes? Um, what do you just from being sort of watching the team and, and around day to day, hearing kind of things from the ground? What do you think is the most likely shake up? Like, what does their roster look like? Um, what does the Pacers' roster look like post trade deadline in terms of of these kind of main guys still being around? I, I've heard so many different things from so many different people, including from other markets. I mean, I think that's pretty tough to say. They they tend to work pretty quietly. I'm guessing that they're evaluating. I mean, this this sounds like a cliche, you know, canvassing the whole league and looking for every option. But I think they kind of have to be doing that at this current point in time. But I would say just for me personally, if I were them, 
unless it was a complete no-brainer, my first step would be you're not going to get a player of the caliber of Sabonis and what I've seen over the last month and a half from him to come and sign with the Indiana Pacers. And to this point, they haven't actually, and I'm not saying that you do build around him as a number one option, but they haven't really constructed the roster in a way that is necessarily to build with him either. So I would like to see them take that step first, especially because he does have two years left on his contract. See if you can make the defense viable, and if you can't, then you can go the nuclear option, which you might get to anyways. Where then I don't think that it's going to hurt his value if you wait and evaluate that, because I think the other things that teams already know that he does well, I think the other teams probably already have question marks about his defense. Um, that's the half measure that I would take, and if I were them, I would be looking for uh, stuff to get with Turner and Levert. But if if you told me what you know, that's just me saying that based on having no idea what types of packages are being offered to them right now. If you told me that nothing that you can get back from Miles is going to make any of that viable, then maybe my opinion would change, and you take you know what the bigger package would likely be for Sabonis. I'm guessing that you would probably be able to get more there, but maybe maybe some teams see Sabonis and just think that would be too tricky of a fit. I don't know what other executives are thinking, but just speaking in broad strokes, that would be what path that I would take. Sure. No, that makes sense. My, uh, I, I don't know if I've, if I've pitched my crazy Sabonis idea to you, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it now live just to see if I could, if, if you gasp at horror. Um, is I, I I would be kind of intrigued by some kind of like uh, uh, you know Ben Simmons for Sabonis plus kind of package. I think that that's a it's it's not a, it's a non obvious fit with Embiid, but I think that there would be some some interesting interesting things there for Philly, and then you know just just it's a, would be a straight talent play for you know whatever else you say about Ben Simmons. Like um, he's he is a he is a He's, he's been an all NBA level performer before, and and if you get the best version of him, that's something you can that's something you can build around. I think, but that's everyone I I've told that everyone who's who's who I've I've mentioned that to is looked at me like I have three eyes. So no, I, I I'm only slightly horrified for this reason. Like I'm not completely anti Ben Simmons. I don't uh, have some of the strong opinions that other people have, but my problem is thus. Like I'm already seeing teams setting three and four guys at Sabonis right now because the Pacers don't really have the shooters to put around him. And if I'm just looking at between Miles Turner and Embiid, um, I'm not really sure why the Pacers would look at that and think, oh, we could be a better team than what the Sixers were. Like, I get the Miles. I mean, clearly Miles lately wants to be posting. They're doing it all the time when he's out on the court where he's looking for duck-ins or whether he gets the ball or not. So... Um, that must be some element that he wants, but like Embiid only made 11 fewer threes than Miles Turner last year. Miles has only shot above 35% from three once, one season in his career. So you'd be losing some of the other playmaking and stuff that Sabonis does. And I'm not sure that the Pacers should expect that they would be better than what the Sixers were. And then my other question too is like, just a broader one for other teams with regards to Ben is like, I think that some teams probably would see him as the four, and then it's like if, if he was the short roller with the Pacers and, and you know, I've seen in the past where teams would, would duck under Brogdon or duck under Levert, um, that's going to neuter some of what you can do there. And then would teams, especially for a team like the Pacers where they don't have elite off-ball shooting, um, I'm not sure that I would come off of the corners. I would probably just be like, hey, Ben, make that pull up two on the short roll or show sure. us what you can do there. So 
Um, I have those types of questions. And for the Pacers in the market that they are, I mean, they must have interest because there's been so many different reporters that have said that they're still in it and what the teams are. I, I just question it from what other pieces they currently have because they don't really have movement shooters either. It's not like, right. I, you know, Sabonis uh, is already trying to make that work. Right. I don't think I don't think you make that move unless you're planning on on putting the ball in Simmons hands. So that's and and like the if if one was going to talk oneself into that, I think you would say, well, that's going to be the the best on ball creator Miles Turner has played with, you know, perhaps, you know, I think he's a better on ball creator than the, you know, maybe not necessarily for himself, but certainly for for what Miles Turner wants, he's, he'd be the best on ball creator he's ever played with. Certainly, I think certainly think he'd be superior than like even the best version of Oladipo. Um, My only question though, too, though, is like I still think you're going to need to run snug pick and rolls. Like yeah. I mean, if it, it, Miles wants to be the screener, if you're running screen action with Ben on ball, people are going to duck under that on the pick and pop yep. or just switch it. And then if you're needing to run snug at that point, then you know. Obviously, right. the Sixers want what they want, but I mean, if you if you need to run physical snug pick and roll so that Ben can get to the rim, I, it would make more sense just to play Ben and Sabonis. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Um, anyway, thank you for not uh, for not for not uh, um, you know <laughs> for not making too much fun of me for my crazy trade ideas. But um, uh, this has been great. I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I feel like I get a a, a deep basketball education every time we talk. So. I really appreciate that. Uh, anything else you want to uh, uh, either plug or or uh, let, let the folks know before I let you go? Right. So, I mean, you can if you're listening to this, you can check out my article about uh, the Pacers hedge scheme that went up this morning. And then we'll have a couple of podcasts at the Indy Cornrows podcast this week headed into, you know, trade season as we near the deadline and and also just to comment on what you said i don't think there's any way i could possibly be teaching you something about basketball the reverse is oftentimes the case where i read oh, your stop. stuff and, and learn about you know even just finding various sites that are quite helpful about uh where i can find numbers that help explain what i'm seeing so um you're the person that is is doing the educating here that's that's very kind of you, but I but seriously, like as it's the kind of thing that as I've gotten more into the numbers, my the, the, my progress of understanding the game at a technical strategic level has I don't know stalled, but hasn't hasn't grown at the same rate. And and people like you and Mo have been extremely helpful for at least helping me fake it. So uh, so, <laughs> so thank you for that, and uh, and thanks for coming on. This was this was a great time. Uh, Hopefully uh, we can uh, reconvene again, maybe after the trade deadline, and you can uh, you can you can break down a little bit what. Uh, assuming someone has moved from the Pacers, what the new team can expect from from the guys they've brought on. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, take care, everyone. I am actually I am back tomorrow with a former coworker of mine from the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, Mason Yar, who's going to talk to us some about uh, integrating uh, data and sports science, keeping players on the floor, injury prevention, all of those dark arts. Uh, look forward to that conversation. And uh, thanks again to Caitlin and talk to you all soon.